Happy New Year and welcome to the newest episode of Community Voice. We have a special New Year themed episode for all of you guys, especially as you're starting on a new goal or setting up a startup or not even sure where to start with your resolutions. We hope the story of the young woman in this episode gives you the inspiration you need to start the new year right. Today we're covering the story of a young woman who left a very comfortable job and ended up trekking halfway across the world with a complete stranger to found her own company over the course of a year. What started out as a fellowship that she started called Designers of Tomorrow or The Dot Project took a life of its own and now our special guests and her co-founder are starting their own social impact enterprise called Stepwell. We cover everything from how she summoned the courage to leave her job to how she dealt with naysayers to how she met the person that she would ultimately travel the world with. Welcome to a new episode of Community Voice. I say this about every episode, but we have a special episode for you this week. As always, we have Kieran Shandy, President and CEO of Consult Your Community, on. And we also have Catherine Burzowski, the difficult last name that I'm getting better at saying online as well. And then today we have a special guest who has kind of tracked all over the world and is joining us on Community Voice to kind of tell her story. Anmol Kaur, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, Anmol. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of turn it over to Kieran to introduce Anmol and get us kicked off this week. Great. Thanks, Thomas. So as Thomas mentioned, we have a pretty special guest who's traveled the world to, to kind of be on this podcast and kind of a special one because Anmol is starting her own company. We met serendipitously probably over a year ago, back when she was trying to figure out, hey, you know what, I, I'm, you know, I'm an engineer and I want to use my skills for good. How can I go out and make a social impact with where I'm at right now? And so she was navigating that and started Designers of Tomorrow. So that kind of evolved over time. And that was a fellowship initially. And now she's starting her own company. And so Anmol would love to you know, hear a bit more about yourself or for those of our listeners who don't know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to, to start Designers of Tomorrow and, and what you're up to now. Yeah. Hey guys, nice to be on here. So yeah, my name is Anmol. I co-lead a company called Stepwell. We're just getting started, but we are a design and social change studio. So we're a small team. We're really focused on bringing community members into the process of research and design to address big global challenges. We typically partner with social change organizations and together with the organization, we'll set up what we call pop-up studio spaces, where we essentially welcome people from all walks of life to come in, share their stories with us, help us map out and understand the local challenges better and work alongside us to design solutions to what's most pressing and important to them. We've just gotten started with Stepwell and we definitely have a long, long way to go on that front. But we didn't really start in your very typical startup format. So like Kieran was alluding to, we actually started as two strangers, a big 12-month-long experiment far, far from home, actually in India, where we said, could we create our own education at the intersection of design and social change? I don't come from a traditional background in either design or social change. And I knew that if I wanted to step into the space or make any kind of meaningful change, 
it had to start with first building the skills that I needed. And so Designers of Tomorrow sort of came to life in quest of what is the education that we need for ourselves and what happens if we actually go out and self-direct that education, put ourselves in the context that we really want to learn from and get started with some with some projects. You said something that was pretty interesting that you trekked over to India with a complete stranger. So tell us a little bit about how that came to happen, because I, I think that's something our, our listeners would definitely want to know. So about a year and a half ago, I wanted to, as I was mentioning, I wanted to transition into this world of social change. And I was really curious about, hey, what are the ways in which we design solutions for big challenges like poverty and inequality? And I grew more and more interested in the field of human-centered design, going actually learning ways to bring local community members, people who are really facing the challenges first and foremost into that process. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to learn these skills that I actually know nothing about, the natural thing to do would be go back to grad school. As, we, as I started going and applying to these different schools, everyone came back and said, hey, great, submit your design portfolio. And I didn't have a portfolio at the time to submit. And I actually thought the, I, my primary goal for coming into these schools was to go and build that skill set in that portfolio. And so it was obviously a very frustrating experience going through that process. And for a long time, I thought, well, maybe this means the door is shut. But I just didn't feel like it that made sense or that should have been shut in that in that way. And so I started to ask, what would happen if I actually went out and built this portfolio these schools are asking for? And of course, as I tell my friends and my family and everyone else around me that, hey, guys, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go build a portfolio. But to juice, I think the best use of my time would be to actually go out and understand emerging world context. And so a country like India would be not in the sense of, hey, can I go solve any problems there? But can I go actually learn and understand what the context is like out there? And everyone said, hey, Amal, you're crazy. Don't don't do that. That makes no sense. But I think what I heard at the time was don't do it alone. And so... I thought, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You're right. I should probably put a team together to do this with me. And so I put together actually a website, threw a website up, and I said, hey, apply to come to India for a year. We're going to practice all these skills, build a portfolio, work on some really cool projects, learn design thinking, do some social change work, apply now. And actually, I thought that no one would apply over maybe a number, three weeks. I suddenly had 27 applications, amazing, amazing candidates. And I ended up finding a co-founder through that process, Chris, who then decided that he wanted to do a very similar journey. And we were very aligned in our learning goals. And we decided to put together a learning journey for ourselves over the year. That sounds incredible. And I had looked at the video, I think that you and Chris had put together. And it was funny to hear both of you talk about how you were both kind of recovering either from being an engineer or being a consultant and also how kind of the rejection didn't seem to make sense because, and it actually makes a lot of logical sense why it doesn't make sense <laughs> in that right, you, you want to attain those skills to be able to, to put that forward. So why would any, why would there be an expectation that you would kind of come prepackaged? One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, do you think that it was kind of a, a mindset change for both of you? And how did you kind of finally come to that conclusion? 
And one of the things that your website makes very clear, like don't wait for permission. How do you think both you and Chris reached that point? I think for a lot of people, it's kind of, oh, that door shut. Okay. You know, you need to figure it out, go on the correct trajectory, do what people normally do. Yeah. What kind of changed? Was it a conversation? Uh, what, you know, what, what was that change agent for you? Yeah, I think there's two really big things that happened. One, I think at, at the time that we were just getting started or at the time that I was applying to these universities, a big question for me was sort of the pressing. I felt an urgency at that time to switch into the social change field between a lot of just the rising and more evolving challenges and feeling like they were coming closer and closer to home and just feeling like I needed to be contributing to that, to those challenges. So there was the sort of urgency on that side. And when I first started to look through these websites and when I started to feel rejected, actually this journey, we talk a lot about now saying, hey, let don't wait for permission to create change. And what happens when we stop waiting for that permission? But funnily enough, this journey was, I think, actually in pursuit of that permission. And so we were told, hey, we won't let you into these universities. And in my mind, it was a very clear step that if I didn't have the degree, I wouldn't have a job in the field or I wouldn't have the right kind of credentials to move forward. And I'd always imagined that I would go do this year of portfolio building and then come back and apply to these colleges again. And I think over time, actually over the course of the year um, and much closer to the end of our year of learning was when we sat down one day and said, hey, what are we going to do next when we get home? And it suddenly made no sense to go back and apply to those colleges anymore. We had spent, we had learned so much through the practical experience, through the in sort of in-world context. And it almost felt silly in hindsight to think that, hey, all along we had thought we wouldn't be able to do any of this work um, if we didn't have the degree and we were out there doing it already. So I think we've really sort of internalized this message a lot and we're constantly now questioning and checking ourselves as we build Stepwell and any kind of future projects to say, when is there a true rejection and how much of that is a rejection that we've sort of told ourselves that without this, we can't move forward? And is there a way we can just pick up and move forward? I think I would say that was the biggest learning of our year of learning for us. You adventured on a new path and... It was something that you had to leap into the unknown. There wasn't necessarily a, you know, structure, like an application to, to do this. You were kind of uh, envisioning something in your head and you put it on a website and uh, kind of like field of, field of dream style, you know, it just, you build it and it came in terms of people applying. So I'm curious, as someone who's interested in hearing the journeys of people who start businesses, you kind of first gave yourself permission or, or try to seek permission for yourself to do something bold. But then there was also, you mentioned earlier, finding a co-founder and diving with them and realizing that this was a person that you were going to actually explore this journey with, which, you know, as someone who's Indian can attest, Indian parents are, are can be very conservative and, you know, really, really be protective. So how did you convince your parents and people that were telling you you're crazy that traveling with a stranger to the other part of the world was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, this was a huge battle to fight all along. I think that I really kept reframing it back as an experiment. And even actually in the process, 
the original, as I first mentioned the thought of going abroad for a year, I think everyone around me said, you know, like you said, it was crazy and it didn't make any sense. And I had said that actually I would, we could validate, Hey, is it actually crazy? And so I told my mom, it was a bit of a bet with my mom where I said, Hey mom, I'm going to throw a website up and I'm just going to see who responds. And if five or six, you know, a handful of people are interested in doing something similar that one validates, Hey, there's a gap and people aren't able to learn this stuff elsewhere. And they're looking for opportunities to go out and build their portfolios. And it could just kind of do a gut check and perhaps nobody wants to do something like this. And maybe, you know, I truly am a little crazy for thinking that this made sense to do. And so even throwing the first website up, I think was a huge validation step. And I think we ended up just taking every day in sort of mini, mini tests from there and saying, okay, let's prove, let's just do this for a month and prove it. And so when I first, when we started, when I first met Chris and we, you know, after a number of interviews and sessions getting to know each other we said okay well let's just start working and at the time we didn't have a date we didn't know you know we didn't have a plan for what you were going to do like you said but we said okay we'll just give it a month let's see what we can like let's put some deadlines let's say here are some of the modules or some of the things we want to get through let's get going can we find two professors who would be willing to support us and again it became a test and said yeah actually yeah there are professors who want to support us and we then said can we find a first partner organization in India to partner with? Um, and so we started cold calling little NGOs and villages in northern India and said, hi, we're here. This is the kind of stuff we want to do. Is it possible for us to come and partner with you? This is what we can offer. And again, as people started accepting and saying, hey, yes, there are opportunities for you here. And exactly that. Actually, that skill set is really important. Um so we just took it one offer to one kind of question at a time. And I think we, there was a lot of mini rejections along the way. So there was a lot of tweaking and adjusting, but every time we hit a spot where we did get the yes and we did get the approval or we got a solid partnership or someone sort of pushing us along and supporting us in that sense, I think it became clear over time that it was the right thing to do. And so almost actually quite contrary to what we often hear around you know, this moment of I had a feeling that this was it or this was the right thing to do. I really think I don't think I could point to that point and say, hey, at this point, we knew. But I think at every point, it was becoming clearer and clearer along the way. And we just kept doing it until there was a reef there and stop. And for us, I guess, it, over the course of the year, there wasn't. We just made the right adjustments to keep going. So I have a very silly question I wanted to ask. Yeah. Which is, there might be a lot of folks on the line who don't know what design thinking is or, you know, what it means to sit at the intersection of business, a design thinking and global development. Can you give an overview of, of what that means from your perspective? This is a great question, Karen, because it's definitely a hotly debated topic in the world of, especially people as we become more familiar with, with the phrase design thinking and it's as it becomes popularized and used in the corporate sector and the nonprofit sector. So I think that there's probably a more real, very specific definition online. But to me, I think when I talk about it, I talk about it really as a process of um, a process where we do research in a very participatory and human centered way to elicit and understand the challenges from the ground up. And then how you take those findings and using a very creative sort of 
idea generation focused approach saying there's no we know that there might not be the one right exact answer but can we throw a million ideas out to based on what we're hearing and finding and then test many of those ideas rapidly um, do quick prototypes put mini mini tests together and validate everything you're finding and through that ultimately come up to a solution that really makes sense that's grounded and tested and ready to go it's about i think really failing fast and no instead of sitting in you know over powerpoints or kind of business planning strategy meetings and saying we won't actually put anything out in front of anybody until we know that it's the right answer but flipping that on its head and saying let's find out what the right answer is by putting many things out there and testing them so to me that's sort of the essence of design thinking and when we think about it in global development context i think it becomes so important to bring that way of thinking into that world as we talk about you know the efficacy of aid that goes out or the solutions that there's been a number of solutions in recent years that have kind of made big news around hey we put a lot of money into into a solution and it's now not being used anymore it wasn't right for the system or for the people in the community for any number of reasons and so i think it just becomes so important to say what happens if we actually bring the community members into the process of design with us and test with them build with them design together really yeah i think that's really important and and kind of jumping off of that what type of design research did you do in india and and what did you and chris learn kind of from that research yeah um, wow um, so we are we did a num- we did three sort of big projects over the course of the year and it's one won't go into all of them but our one the sort of big project we did was with rural women in north india where we started to study the dynamic of work and so paid work and what we started calling unpaid work which is essentially a lot of what women in every community do cooking cleaning household work taking care of elderly and children all of that so it's work that society needs to be done to function but it's not work that you get paid for and all around the world i think this is sort of a big challenge we we face it here in north america we face it in asia in europe everywhere else where the, the there's a disproportionate allocation of unpaid work into the hands of women in india this is an especially large challenge and so that sort of became the essence of our in that in that case the project became around hey, what are the barriers to closing this unpaid work gap? So what is unpaid work? Seeking out to really define it in the context of a rural woman's day. And beyond just understanding what is unpaid work and beyond saying, hey, here's some time-saving technologies we could put out. Um, for example, you could say a laundry machine could actually cover, you know, three hours of a hand-washing process. That takes up a lot of time in unpaid work. But what's sort of the very personal and human level barriers to closing that gap and we would find things like actually even when women had gotten time in their day back or had had time saving technologies that would save them time they would fill up the rest of their time with more unpaid work that wasn't on the table already for them to do and so we became very curious about things like that and we would find actually it's because women associate their identity to their household work and so they take great pride in it they take 
sort of in the same way that we would go the extra mile to do work at work um, in the office. This is what they take a lot of pride in when we go the extra mile to do. And so things like that we would uncover through very participatory on-ground research methodologies. Hey, Anmal, this is Catherine. So I have a question for you relating to the fact that you worked on a small team. And I think that a lot of our listeners who are, you know, working in startup cultures, really identify with how challenging it is at times to put a lot of different hats on within an organization. So I was wondering if maybe you could speak to how valuable that is and how different that experience is from working in, you know, a larger organization. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a huge mindset shift, I would say, first and foremost for me personally. The previous organization I worked at was a large financial institution in Toronto. And so being there, having a very specific role and having sort of the comfort of someone to lead so many different functions, actually, I don't think I ever valued that as much when I was in the organization. But there were so many times this year where we would try to do very small things like manage our finances. And I would sit and think, I wish I knew something more about this topic. And it it was always, actually, I think it was always a task that felt non-core to what we were doing. And so whether it was booking travel, very small things like booking travel to writing blog posts, for example, or putting out a communication or planning an event because we wanted to gather a community of people together or doing a sales pitch, it almost felt like you had to take on so many new roles. And so our learning was much beyond the actual just, you know, core skills of design and research and strategy work, but being just thrown kind of in the deep end or throwing ourselves in the deep end, I guess, in this case, really pushed us to to kind of just do it and trial and error. I do wish that I had maybe, you know, had been better prepared for that or had been better thought sort of, I think when you get started, you don't think that hey, actually, there's 50 other elements to think about. Um, And so I think even between Chris and I, really learning to manage our time became really important. I think as we did one or two things over the first couple of months, it became more evident where we had more natural skill sets. And so going forward, like I think naturally selecting the tasks that made sense for each of us to do uh, became really important. And Obviously, in terms of time saving and higher quality of just output, it just worked better when we started to divide and conquer the tasks. And so that was a big learning for us, I think, that we weren't expecting or ready for. Yeah, so I, I think that's so interesting, especially coming from a, a background in finance at a financial institution like that. What I'm specifically interested in is, you know, the conversations that you'd had with friends who said, don't do that. That doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. And when it comes to you deciding to, you know, pursue that portfolio. And I think people really don't often take those risks, right? That's something that a lot of freelancers also feel like um, they have to overcome. So how hard was it for you to overcome that initial fear? I mean, I mean, if you were at all nervous, right? Yeah. So I think in the first, in the initial days when I had thought about, you know, quitting the comfortable job um, and sort of switching over, it was a huge, huge fear. I think I definitely feared a lot of everything from 
you know, there was a lot of financial considerations to make, as you can imagine, just like not knowing what was ahead. I think for me, it became a big question because the alternative for me was grad school. I told myself they would be of the same investment. And so I would frame it into a year of learning. I would be investing, I guess, less than I would do to go to grad school. And I think chunking it off, doing the time block became a really important way to think about it for me. And so I always say that while to the outside world, often like, people will come up to me and say, hey, that was a very crazy, risky thing that you did this past year. And I always remember thinking it was, it was very scary, but it was very calculated. And so I remember saying, hey, here's a budget that I'm going to put aside for this year. I'm actually going to save money in, compared to the alternative route of having gone to grad school. It's time bound. I'm leaving on really good terms with the company that I'm working at now. I have good network and support and hard skills to come back. I think just being really cognizant of there's an alternative route out if it didn't work out. And so that I took a lot of comfort in, in what I did already have. But I think that I think up to today, the fear does still definitely stand and they still question, is it going to continue? How do we, how do we keep going? How do we keep the effort and the steam going? So, you know, I, one, one follow-up question I have to, to your story, because I'm, I'm remembering maybe a year ago when we, when we first met over a brief conversation, we we're talking about, you know, you were just kind of envisioning this and said, hey, I have a website out there. And you got people, some people who were totally for the vision that you were extolling and others who, uh, there was a funny story I remember about someone reaching out and saying, you know, is this a real fellowship? Like, you know what's the deal there? And they were, they were kind of expecting a structure and were surprised by the fact that you were starting this. So do you want to kind of share that story? Cause I just thought that was back then, like I was just so surprised by the fact that you'd gotten that feedback and had this interaction. And I was like, you know, this is a kind of interesting story about putting yourself out there and getting sometimes negative feedback in the process and how you kind of spin something on its head and, and frame something differently. So do you want to share that story really quickly? This is one of my favorite stories to tell. But when I had first put the website up, and I think you'll remember, I actually didn't know what I was putting on the website. So it was a very basic, and it's quite embarrassing to look at this old website sometimes, actually. But it had, it was just a one page static website that said, apply for a fellowship program. I gave it a name, I made a little logo for it. And <laughs> I said, apply for the fellowship, we'll do three projects, we'll be across the world in India. We'll learn about design thinking and human-centered design and social change, X, Y, Z, um, apply here. And I threw a deadline on, um, you know, and I wasn't actually expecting anyone to take it seriously or really apply. It was totally a big test. But as people started applying and I got really good applications, and actually, in fairness, the application process was a bit lengthy and it included things like submitting your statement of purpose and your resume and all kinds of things. And so people had put a lot of effort in to apply to this thing. And so when I would call them and say, hey, guys, actually, thanks for applying. But this program doesn't really exist in the way that I said it exists. But what I actually did was put my vision of what a program could be up for you to look at. And I would love for you to build this program together in partnership with me. And so some people took that very badly and say, you can't just put things like that on the internet. And, you know, I was really expecting when you said that there was a program here, I was expecting a true program here. And so I remember having some really tough conversations and saying things like, 
hey, you know, I get it. And I'm sorry to have wasted your time. But actually, in this case, it was really important for me to put the vision up and not, I think what some of the feedback that I had gotten was, well, why did you do it this way? Why not just go on and say, hey, I'm looking for a co-founder to build a learning program. And I had given this a lot of thought. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, what I was really fearful of was having people apply who would say things like, hey, I'm a, I'm a program builder. I know how to build programs. That's why I'm applying because I'm keen to build another program. But what I was looking for and I was so confident I was looking for is a co-learner. I, I knew that there was a skill set gap or there was things we had to figure out where we would need people who knew how to build programs and were really entrepreneurial and all these different things. But first and foremost, the idea was to find someone who was keen and kind of in the same headspace around wanting to learn the same things I wanted to learn. And so I actually think it was so important for me to paint it as the vision and find people who wanted to be a part of that from the learning perspective. And so I had to have a lot of hard conversations to explain that mindset to people. But on the other hand, there were people like Chris and actually a couple, a number of other people who took it so positively and said, this makes the opportunity cooler because I was hoping that I would be able to, you know, apply entrepreneurial skills and do this kind of learning. But I was settling for a pre-baked program because I didn't have anyone or I didn't know how to sort of take the first step to get it started. And so it gave people like Chris kind of a double outlet in that sense. And so, yeah, definitely some hard conversations there, but I think it was worth it. And I would, if I had to go back and do it again, I would definitely do it the same way again. And, and besides Chris not having gotten, gotten mad uh, in his initial reaction, <laughs> what, what were the characteristics or skill sets that you were looking for throughout that interview process and, and the ones that obviously Chris had, mm. had most of, um, of the people you interviewed? Yeah. So I think there was a number, there was a kind of a three or four core things that I was really looking for more than anything else. I, I think knowing that we were going in to learn what I was really conscious of is not putting up the same barriers that I was just trying to go against in the first place. So I was really conscious of not saying, Hey, I need people who already know this stuff. Right. Um, and so it became a lot more for me about who could, who, who would I match sort of the learning, whose learning objectives would I match with best so that we could structure we truly share projects and do projects in ways that both of our learning goals could be met through those projects. I was really keen to look for sort of what I call like the hustle kind of mindset. And so who was ready to jump in and, and actually, you know, figure it out. And I think that if I was going to be away from home in new, in new context with someone I didn't know, it was really important that they were willing to kind of navigate those situations and then I think lastly, it was a lot of, I look what I called, one of the questions I asked in the application was, tell me something you're a pro at. It could be cooking, it could be, you know, making robots, or it could be airplanes for all that matters. But I think seeing some kind of dedication and passion towards a topic was really important for me. And so I think I really tried to focus in on compatibility in those aspects more than hard skills in this case. Chris was especially unique because he had a lot of that, the kind of curiosity and drive and 
readiness to jump into something like this. But he also came from, he brought a lot of hard skills from his consulting background and um, having worked in international development across um, some countries in Africa for the last year before the DOP project. And so he was going to come in with a lot of true sort of hard skills, but paired with the right kind of personal personal matching for us. Yeah, and and I have to say, just watching the video on on your site, it's hard to imagine you guys have only had only worked with each other for this year yeah. and, and kind of didn't know each other previously, uh, which is great, obviously, in a co-founder. Now, what I what I wanted to do is, so you know, you made this quote unquote crazy decision. You learn things, and you come back, and and you're just you know, why do I want to go to grad school? Look what we've kind of just proven to ourselves. So so you start your your small business. So what does your business do in, in more detail and, and kind of what are you guys working on? Let's start there and then let's let's kind of move more into, you know, what does the future look like and what are some things you want people to know about what you guys are doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think as we were wrapping up our set of projects in India, we were thinking a lot about actually how do and I think we were in a place where we just were thinking, how do we do more of this? So in the process of building this portfolio, what we had done was we had ended up partnering with some amazing organizations who were doing local on-ground work, who were dreaming up big financial solutions, big solutions to things like the Unpaid Work Project, which I talked about before. And so I remember coming back really inspired and thinking, I just want to do more of that. And so what we've done is now structured ourselves into a small studio where we partner with social change organizations. And our goal is really to say, can we together find ways that allow anything that we design to be much more human centered so that it truly works and fits for the people that it's being designed for? And can we actually change the context from saying, who is it being designed for to who are we designing with? And so we we now set up these what we call pop-up studio spaces. So for each of our challenges, we figure out the right sort of community that the challenge is affecting and with the partner organization, put up a little studio in that local space so that one, it allows us to be a part of the community and really live in an immersive way with that community and two, allows the community to really contribute back backwards with us. Through the process of doing all these projects in the past year, we ended up learning, I think, so much about change and the way we do change. And so while we had gone in with some assumptions around, you know, we want to build hard skills about ethnographic research and using participatory methods to elicit good responses. But beyond that, I think we started to learn so much about actually a village is a better workplace than an office. So, or any, and by village, you could substitute, I guess, anything in context is a much better workplace than an office. So how do we get, how do we spend more time in the field? We started to talk a lot more about the importance of research and truly understanding the challenges and the kind of time investment it takes to do that, making the case for doing that invest, putting that investment in the research. So our studio and that amongst a couple other sort of big lessons, but we basically took everything that we learned in the last year and turned it into principles for to keep doing the work under the under the label of Stepwell now. 
So Anmol, you know, when I was back in college, I took a, an innovation and design thinking course. And I remember the professor was talking about the impact of human-centered design. And they used an example of a cook stove in a village and how, you know, initially people try to uh, prevent people from, you know, governments would try to say, hey, this is bad for for you know, your lungs, you're getting respiratory problems by using these stoves. But then in, in villages, they would still be very resistant to change because when you do the you know ethnographic research and the, the prototyping and uh, with different solutions, people were saying, hey, you know what, the reason that we use is because it was passed passed down for uh, in our family for, for generations and we like the smoky tastes of the food and all these things that you don't really discover in like a pure survey format. So I was curious to hear during um, during your experience starting Stepwell, uh, one, what is the, the main focus in terms of your design research? Like are there spe- specific types of social uh, impact problems that you're trying to stand better? And second, can you give an example of one of the types of methods you use to get a better understanding of your clients, your clients' needs? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the first, your first question was the types of challenges that we want to focus on. I think for us, we're really, I think there's so many broad challenges to be done. And I think we're so, we're really curious about how we apply the methodology to any number, any one of those challenges. Personally, I'm very keen to understand poverty-related challenges much more and inequality challenges closer to home much more. And so that's sort of become the starting of our work here. And then I think, Karen, your second question was around ethnographic research and the kind of methods we've been using. One of the things, so there's actually, we ended up, because this was our year of learning, we sort of had the, I guess, luxury to play a lot over the course of the year under the brand of learning. And so we spent a lot of time experimenting with lots of different methods and actually games to elicit the right kind of response, to elicit sort of more depth in the responses. And for example, one of the things we would do some, some very traditional ethnographic things like a day in the life. And so there was a day in, in the village where, keeping up with the unpaid work project again and that example where we would we shadowed two lady two women in the community with everything they did from so we woke up at 5:30 with them started to you know help make breakfast and cooking to milking the cow to doing laundry over the course of the day and i think that was a huge exercise of empathy for us where we would you know it was much more than what typically would happen in an observation where you would say hey, 5.30, we did this, 7 o'clock, you do this. But it became really an exercise for us around energy mapping and seeing, for me, I was crashing by 8 a.m. because we had already done so much from 5.30 to 8. And to even think that there was a whole, the whole rest of the day to keep going on. And then to be in the same kind of mindset with a woman around, you know, when we wanted the chai break and when we wanted to just relax and what how emotionally draining it felt when the kids came running home and it was just time for a break and so i think to feel all those emotional ups and downs with the woman became a huge exercise in empathy for us and so this is kind of a big thing we talk to our clients a lot about is how do we get more people from your organization to do the sort of the journey the day in the life of with the community members and 
and allow the community members to invite us into their days in much more personal ways than than just mapping or surveying the situation. We would also do a lot more fun sort of game type activities where one we would call one was, was what's on your radar. And so we would put down a number of stickies um, around different things that could be priorities for the woman and say, help us map what's most important to you to the core circle and, you know, sort of build outwards and help us prioritize these based on what you know. And again, it would uncover such different things. And I think many times in these interviews or these sessions, we don't know the questions that we have for these women or for anyone that we're interviewing for that matter. And playing games like this both allows them to truly step away from their traditional responses or takes some kind of the power out of the, the interaction with them, but also allows us to ask questions that we didn't know we had. So when they would prioritize something that we weren't even expecting, um, allows us to ask why, allows us to figure out a whole other meaning to the challenge that might never have come up in the first place. And so I think it's been really cool for us to design different games um, as part of this process um, and do a lot more empathy building exercises. So for for our audience members and the people who are listening and, and the general public, how can they get involved with Designers of Tomorrow and some of the work that that you guys have done and, and learn from those experiences? You know, Thomas, I would love for I would love to capture more stories. And so we I think Chris and I know that our story is not unique um, in any sense. And there's people and especially this community of people who are taking risks to create change in their communities and big risks, small risks, all kinds of things. And we're really keen to actually hear those stories. And so if we could ask for anything back to the audience members, it would be to please share your story with us. If you either taken on any kind of risk to create change, or if you're considering it, but are feeling held back, um, are there things that you're waiting for permission for? What are those things? We'd love to hear your voice. And we are really looking to kick off a bigger campaign around this, around the topic of what happens when more of us stop waiting for permission to create change. And we would love for this community to be involved as part of that campaign. And well, I, I just have a question that kind of relates to students, but also, you know, those who have started a career that they, they might not identify with still. So I think for students, when you graduate from a college or university, and I know this is a few years back for you, having a degree sometimes can feel like it, it limits you, right? It only gives you so many options in terms of a career. Can you maybe dispel that common misconception to those listeners who think that you know, the, the degree they have in their diploma or the job that they currently have will prevent, prevents them from doing anything else. Because I think your story specifically speaks leaps and bounds to how much, you know, we can truly accomplish if we open our eyes to those opportunities and pursue, you know, those things that we are passionate about. So to, to reiterate, can you can you be, talk about how you decided to you know go on this journey despite having you know what some would argue is a plan already? Yes, absolutely, Catherine. 
I think you're right that one, it's just a big common, very common misconception that we are, we're limited by the degrees we have. Because I think in if this year, one of the big lessons that I've learned this year is how interconnected these any of today's big challenges are and how much we need actually the voices from every discipline on the table. And so when even when I first started this journey, I remember talking about it and thinking about it as a as a big change. And so we used to say, I'm leaving behind a very, you know, engineering consulting type career into doing this very different work. But over the course of the year, the number of times I relied on my background it's actually astounding and it's made me realize more and more value so much more the importance of what I was bringing to the table. So actually having a very different background was made, made me much more powerful in, in the new work that I was doing. Um, but also I think the other half of your question really speaks to well, where do we, like, can we actually jump into the new work? And I think, you know, it would be naive perhaps to say that, hey, you know, anyone can do anything and we can just kind of jump into a new career and get started. And so I think just being really cognizant of the skills gap and truly taking stock of, you know, here's what I do know and here's what my background is all I need to bring to the table. But here are, here is this, here is what I still need to learn. And taking the time to just learn those skills and merge, like get getting started on the work and the opportunity to learn is just available today, especially is available to us beyond so much more beyond the classroom. And so whether that's online courses or um, doing by learning or any other number of things that I think I'm a huge believer now in saying our degrees and our professional backgrounds are really, really important, but there's nothing stopping us from just like building on them and learning anything else that we want to learn. And, you know, I, I love that you're saying that, like, you know, the education is a stepping stone um, as opposed to something like you're not, you're not saying, Hey, you don't need it. You're saying there's a way to transform what you've got to transition into, um, you know, uh, other areas that you want to explore. And, and I really love what you mentioned at the beginning of the interview about how, you know, we weren't, you, you weren't kind of going into a, a situation I'm going to solve this problem. Instead, you were seeking, seeking to understand first. And I think that's uh, probably a lesson that our students and, you know, professionals in, in the working world, too, can definitely learn from as well, because um, kind of going in with this, this arrogant mindset, especially something that you kind of see sometimes with volunteerism in, in social impact, especially can be very detrimental to societies. So, um, or, or especially the, the context you're going to. So I, I do think that the, the way that you framed your experience is, is very refreshing, Amul. And, and my closing question for you is, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came up with the name Stepwell. Because I know the name that, a, that a, like a business owner chooses is always kind of special for some reason. So I'd love to hear how that kind of came into being. Yeah, actually the naming process is so hard and is another one of those things that nobody ever talks about but i remember when we had first said we want to keep the dot project concept alive and we want to continue doing lots more work with change makers kind of stepping up to create change but we want to 
kind of put a new brand together that says going forward, this is sort of the umbrella of our new work. And then for so long, not knowing what to call it. So we would always say the new brand in amongst ourselves and in our meetings. And we struggled for many days to, to even have anything to identify it as. And so one day we said, okay, let's just name it. What's the big deal? <laughs> we went through a lot of silly exercises. So we would say, we, we should look up names of trees or plants or flowers. Or we were looking for any and all kinds of inspiration. But Steph will actually came to us from our trip to Jaipur in India, where we learned about this concept of an old style of well in India. And so it was a, it was a community hangout space. And actually, if you Google the image of a step well, they're gorgeous, beautiful spaces, but it's a lot of steps coming down into a, a well, a community share water. And I think the, the concept just so beautifully held to us that we were really inspired more by the space. And as we talk about building pop-up studio spaces that bring community members together um, towards a shared sort of resource, a pool of information um, and activity. It, I remember being there and thinking, yay, this, this really just captures the essence of what we're trying to do. Um, and actually, we really love that it allowed us to sort of keep a bit of an Indian grounding to our name as part of our origin story. And so Stepwell came from Jaipur and the step, the ancient Stepwells of India. Anyone who who hasn't Googled that should definitely do it. Uh, they are beautiful. And, and I think architectural, if not engineering feats uh, as, as well. I, I'm, I'm not sure how, how kind of far back they go, but but very impressive. Anmol, for, for the entire group here, I want to... I want to thank you for for jumping on Community Voice and letting us kind of hear your voice and uh, learn more about about what you did and what what Chris did and what you guys are are kind of continuing to do in in the future. Thanks, guys. It's been such an inspiration hearing your story and the stories of other change makers from your community. <laughs>